Blog Talk Radio. So now we're live with Everybody. Facebook Live and the Vibe Radio Network. Glad to have you all here with us tonight. Yes. And, and the boys are loose. What is he showing on? Uh, I'll find out. We're going to see how this goes. All four cats are out and about. <laughs> yeah, about that. He's got fake greenery. That's not good. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I started pulling out the um, the greenery today, and well, there's a reason why we're not putting up a tree again. Cause, yeah, yeah. Oh, but cheers, everybody! Yes, as soon as I have my drink, I'll cheers you. Yes, yes, yes. We're 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 running a little a little behind this evening. It's all my it's all my fault. But we're here now. We're here. We're drinking eggnog and uh, Chris, not Christmas morning. Um, Gingerbread step. Just yeah, regular gingerbread step. It also goes very well with Christmas pancakes though too, which we have that. But yeah, cheers to the season. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, so gosh, been a uh, been a busy couple of weeks. Okay. Even though it's not October anymore, been a busy couple of weeks. Yeah. We had a uh, uh, our great uh, our, our first run of the uh, the John Marshall and Haunts of Court End tour on Saturday night, which was fantastic. I had a lot of fun with that. Everybody, everybody had a good time, and uh, yep. so much so that we got our next one lined up for December 18th. Yep. So please come on out. Yep. Please enjoy the, the haunted history of the John Marshall and Court End area. Yep. So that was uh, that was a lot of fun, and then. Uh, a couple nights before that, we of course had to go to the new, the premiere of the new Ghostbusters movie, which, which was awesome, fantastic. I want to go see it again. Highly recommend. Yes, it, it definitely left me wanting to see it again. Which, with movie theater prices these days, it's not too often that I say I want to go see it again before it comes out on video. But I will go see that again. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. And it helped that the local Ghostbusters unit was here, which was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> what was it, the ghost buggy is what they called it? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> it was a, was it a Pathfinder? I don't remember. It, it was not yeah. It was not your classic SO1, but they had it, it all done out. Yep. It was cool. Yep, it looked good. But, yeah, so had a had a really good last couple of weeks and got a – Got a good time, good time looking ahead of us here. So yep, of course um, tonight we decided to do haunted Florida because of course we're excuse me uh, just over a year out from our haunted Key West trip that's available to people come join us in the, the haunted Key West. So we decided we're going to try to whet your appetite a little bit with some haunted Florida tales tonight. Yep, we already did haunted. Key West. Parts of it. Parts of it, at least. Yeah, not the entire thing. There's, there's, there's lots, a lot more. A lot more. But um, so we wanted to go ahead and kind of stretch it, like, get around to some of the rest of Florida, which other places we have touched on as well. Yeah, I mean, we've done the bridge, the dead zone as it's known. Yep, um, yep, on uh, I-4 there. And uh, we also talked about, I think it was the, the Black Snake River or something like that. Like that. It was on our Haunted Paddles episode. Yeah. But, now we're going to dive into a couple more places that you can easily go and visit. I didn't touch Palm Disney this time. I'm just letting you know that right now. Or Universal for that matter. Yes, that will be another episode. Haunted theme parks. <laughs> or haunted amusements, I think. Maybe, maybe we need to get there one last time before they blacklist us. Yeah, that would be, <laughs> good. That would be a good idea. But, yeah, so... Um, had all that stuff going on, and then uh, in the weeks ahead, um, again, I already mentioned we're going to be doing our um, the, the court end again, uh, John Marshall and court end again. But the week before that, on December 11th, we are going to be doing a pub hop. So cheers, cheers to that. We're, cheers to drinking and stories. Yep. So tickets for that are also on sale. We're going to be going from uh, Penny Lane Pub over to Triple uh, Triple Crossing oh, Brew. So. Um, be a, have a nice little stroll and some tails and a couple of beverages along the way. Yep. So it'll be a good night. It will be a lot of fun. And, of course, you know, being December, we'll have some warmth before and some warmth after. Yeah. And hopefully it won't be a frigid rainy night. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, uh, yeah, so, oh, and, oh, thanks, Patrick. Patrick shared the link to our uh, Haunts of Key West trip. So, yes, we're definitely looking forward to that. And, Denise says going to Key West is on her bucket list, but haunted Key West would be amazing. We're certainly so, hoping that our trip next Denise, is going to be. You need to come with us. Yes. <laughs> yeah, check it out. Haunts of Key West. Um, they're taking reservations now. So yep. it's all being uh, booked through our friends at Holiday Maker Travel. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
Yep, and uh, remember, it's two investigations, a dinner. Um, your hotel's included. The hotel has uh, breakfast every morning. They have a happy hour. And they also have um, bikes, complimentary bikes for you to uh, borrow and snorkel gear to go over to local state parks so you can uh, do a little snorkeling over there. Um, and, of course, Chris and I will be putting together some day itineraries, so you're welcome to join us as we go to places like the Hemingway House and that sort of thing um, that you can book this time. Um, we're kind of finalizing those things out with uh, Mike and Wendy, and we'll put them uh, available to take a look at sometime in the new year. I'm not sure what our timeline is with that. About 90 days out, was it? Yes, something like that. Oh, and we have Donnie here, too. Donnie is joining us yes, on that trip. That's going to yep. be fun. Yep. So, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to that. And our good friends there at uh, Spirit Guide Paranormal, a couple of them are going to be joining us. Yep. So, yeah, yep. getting, getting a good lineup all, all set up and good to go. So it's going to be exciting. Yep. Um, ready? I think so. Okay. Go ahead and dive right in. All right. So we've touched on the paranormal tales of Florida many times, and we've talked about the spirits that, of course, linger in Key West and a scattering of other paranormal tales, including the spirited flight out of Miami, a cursed highway that cuts across the state, and the haunted campground outside Panama City, and no kitty cat. Um, now, we're just scratching the surface, as Chris said, about these ghostly tales that are rooted deep in the limestone plateau that supports this subtropical strip of land. Florida, of course, was the 27th state to join the country in 1845, but the history associated with this land stretches back long before statehood was ever even considered. For generations, the native people, the Spanish, the British fought over this land vying for control of its rich natural resources and strategic location. A bloodied history belays by the joyous theme parks, the sun-soaked beaches that Florida is best known for today. Spirits linger in this state from every chapter of its history, and we have several of their stories to share tonight. So we're going to start out in Tampa Bay at Fort DeSoto Park. Now, this sits quietly at the mouth of Tampa Bay at the southern tip of the Pinellas County. Fort DeSoto is a serene, beautiful place full of nature and mystery. It attracts nearly 3 million visitors every year. Whether you're going for a day or staying at the campgrounds, Fort DeSoto is an enjoyable escape. But there's a darker side to the fort that isn't well known. Even though Fort DeSoto is one of the most beautiful beaches in the world, the beauty fades with the last rays of sunlight and the shadows grow long and eventually encompass the park with a spine-chilling embrace. The first of the conquistadors to make contact with the Chacoba and the Pantilio de, de Navarre. He was um, his exposition wasn't seeking out their lands. Rather, the ships were run aground in the area during a failed voyage to Mexico in 1528. Hi. We're being a whole booger. We are. <laughs> of the hundreds of men who were part of this expedition, it seems that only one ever made it back to their native Spain ever again. A man named Cabez de Vecca, who arrived back in his native soil in 1537 after years of wandering the southwest corner of the North American continent. He went on to write a detailed and fascinating account of his years as a castaway on the North American continent, describing the local flora and fauna and his encounters with the native people. While the failed the Navarez exposition left Tacoba largely unscathed, the stories of Cabarez de Vaca brought back to Spain inspired another conquistador, Fernando de Soto. To explore that North American continent in search of riches, his expedition landed on the area south of Tampa Bay in 1539. The arrival of de Soto brought to no immediate violence to the Native American people, but it did sow the seeds of disease among the natives who have no natural immunity to European illnesses. Oh. <laughs> Chris is the climbing <laughs> and the boys steal the show. Of course they do. Focus? Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I can't. <laughs> One of us has to focus. <laughs> You're not helping. <laughs> anyway, um, the spreading disease basically caused the Tacoba tribe to largely uh, be driven out of existence by the early 18th century. 
The area around Tampa Bay would be largely uninhabited for nearly a century thereafter. With the arrival of Florida statehood in 1845, there was a renewed interest in the area around Tampa Bay. U.S. Army engineers, including Robert E. Lee, surveyed the area in 1849 and recommended that a military installation be built in the area for coastal defense. No media action was taken, however, and the site served for various military purposes for decades. It was here in 1898, in response to the Spanish-American War, that a permanent battery was established. It was officially and somewhat ironically named after Hernando de Soto in 1900, a Spaniard who helped set up the first official European settlement on the site over 350 years ago. When the fort was completed in 1906, it consisted of a hospital, barracks, guardhouse, blacksmith, mess hall, and store hall. While Fort Sojo was a beautiful place to be stationed, it was subtropical Florida that we're talking about in the days before bunker pellets and air conditioning. Doesn't really sound all that pleasant. Not pleasant at all. <clears throat> Certainly not the happiest place on earth. No. <laughs> the summers there were excruciating hot, swarms of mosquitoes that would descend on the soldiers stationed there. There are records of, from the soldiers stationed that tell of illnesses suffered at the fort. Numerous soldiers died of mosquito-borne diseases while stationed there, specifically yellow fever. Of those that died here, it said that many of them do not rest in peace. Some of the stricken soldiers are still seen and heard in the park late at night, chained to the place that they last resided. Many other spirits are said to linger around Fort DeSoto. Many feel the presence of long-lost Native tribes that first called this land their home. Lingering in the shadows, worry of what new visitors to their new homeland would bring, they also talk of a legend of a young man wandering into the surf in search of his lost love, only for the man himself to abruptly vanish from sight. Some even think that the long-lost treasure of Jose Gaspar might bring this pirate back to the beaches where his loot is rumored to reside. All kinds of spooky stuff there at Tampa Bay. All right. Who's going camping? Got to go search for some pirate loot. Works for me. <laughs> By day and night, work with Soto presents many opportunities to have an encounter, of course, with the paranormal. Of course. He's going to be short I have a furry parrot. You do. And there's a gray kitty that's being nerdy. Oh. Up on the table. Oh, Missy, get down. Who, me? Yeah, you. you gonna make me? I am. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so from Tampa Bay, we are going to move along to Jacksonville Beach, and it's here that um, we're going to just talk about a uh, a woman by the name of Ginger Payson. Now she was born Darlene Edith Payson, and she was an eccentric young woman who performed in burlesque shows all along the East Coast. She also performed in an underwater mermaid show, being touted from around, uh, being toted around from place to place in a huge bowl like a goldfish. Ginger and her husband Ziggy eventually settled down in Jacksonville Beach, where they opened up a bar known as Ginger's Place in 1976. Now, before hosting Ginger's Place, the building was first home to a grocer that opened its doors around 1950. And it later became a dress shop that was also home to a beer-slinging establishment called The Glass Bar. After purchasing and rebranding The Glass Bar, Ginger spent the next 27 years operating her namesake establishment until she passed away from a stroke in 2003. While Ginger never believed in ghosts herself, and while she may no longer physically be there to oversee the day-to-day operations of her beloved bar, many think that her spirit still resides there. Ginger seems to be managing the establishment as if she never left. Now, you don't need to believe in spirits to feel Ginger's presence throughout Ginger's place. A framed framed photograph of Ginger as a young burlesque dancer hangs on the wall. A framed ad calls her the gal who shocked Chicago. She performed an all-star seven-act show as the shower girl. Many other pictures and ads of Ginger's burlesque career grace the walls of her bar, but the regular's favorite image of Ginger is the Valentine's Day photo shoot portrait behind the bar in which her vibrant red hair is arranged on top of her head in the shape of a heart. People are not only finding Ginger inside the picture frames around the bar, however, as many still encounter her today. 
When Junior passed away, the bar was passed to her family, who still run it today. They were amongst the first to experience the strange goings-on that frequent the bar, with things moving around on their own, shadows shifting in ways that should not be possible, and the distinct feeling of having someone brush by them when no one else is there. One bartender named Jamal tells of the time that he was upstairs working with the controls for the lights in the bar when a woman's face appeared right in front of him in the dark. A long-term patron named Randy, who frequented the bar since its days as the glass bar, recalled seeing the sign fly, seeing the sign fly across the room off the door of the women's bathroom, and on another occasion when a calendar inexplicably was thrown to the floor. While the activity can be startling sometimes, those that knew Ginger know that she's still there reminding people that it is still her place. As if to prove that it's not all mischievous, the staff say that sometimes money will appear out of nowhere. It seems that Ginger is intent on doing her part to make the staff feel appreciated and to keep the bar, keep the bar going. That said, Ginger may not be the only spirit still residing at the bar. A paranormal investigator at the bar walked away with a singular piece of evidence. A voice on an EVP was heard to say, we can't talk to you. And there is also said to be the spirit of an old man who died there while using the jukebox and the spirits of some shrimpers who lived in, on the property but died at sea. The owners are keen to make it known that the spirits of Ginger's place are totally harmless, but they urge visitors to raise a glass to Ginger when they visit, just as a mark of respect. I don't want to go to this bar. Cheers to Ginger. Cheers to Ginger. Former burlesque dancer, then turned bar owner. I'm all there. Mm. Ah, so good. So, so good. Now, we're not going to leave Jacksonville Beach quite yet. There's another location there, not too far from Ginger's Place. And it is the old lifeguard station. Now, this building dates back to 1947. The PEG, as it is affectionately known, is a local landmark with a life-saving tradition that dates back to 1912, when the first life-saving service was founded there by the American Red Cross. Now, if you look up a picture of this thing online, you'll see why they call it the PEG. It is a very kind of very plain building, but yeah. distinct, and not, distinct and not ugly either. It's, it's, and it's, it's right down the street from Ginger's. Yeah, it's <laughs> a really unique place. But, yeah, so, um, but anyways, so the peg that is, as it is affectionately known, um, is, uh, you know, has been there since 1947. And while the men and women of the Jacksonville Beach Ocean Rescue Division and the Volunteer Lifesaving Corps have established a long tradition of aiding those in need and of assistance in the surf, their need for continued service is evidenced by the fact that not all survive the sometimes treacherous currents off the sandy shore. The legend goes that the ghosts of people who didn't survive continue to haunt the peg to this day. There's one particular ghost named Todd who's introduced himself on EVP equipment time and again. Todd seems to be the most frequent spiritual visitor at the lifeguard station today. Reports of a shadowy figure have also been a frequent occurrence over the years. These spirits serve as a constant reminder of why it is so important for the members of the Life Saving Corps to continue with their work. And I just like like saving stations and lighthouses. Yeah. I had it, to throw that one in. It's a really cool looking place. Yeah. It'd be it would definitely be interesting to get some more stories about them and find out a little bit more about Todd if we can. But Oh, Lyle's here tonight too. Hi Lyle. Hey Lyle. Any questions before I show? Uh everybody likes the the kitty parrot? Yes. <laughs> it sure are getting a lot of screen time in this episode, yes. And I hope that we're not up in the office. Because the boys aren't allowed in the office right now. No, not yet. It's a little overcrowded with some of my decorations. I'm trying to keep away from them. <laughs> good night for a hot apple cider. It would be good night for that, That's too. Good. But I'm enjoying my... Wait, I finally found Homestead, or Homestead Creamery eggnog. And that is, like, the best thing to do with the gingerbread stuff. So, mm-hmm. had to have it. I, I came home and said, you must worship me because I found this. No, oh, Patrick worked as a lifeguard at 1.2. Cool. I, I spent many a years as a lifeguard in my, my younger years. Yes, you did. Yes. I moved too much to do that, but I, I wasn't spending so long. My younger years. <laughs> uh. All right, so we're going to jump over to Melbourne, Florida, to the 1900 building or the old Melbourne Hotel. Uh, in Melbourne, Florida, you'll find the 1900 building, originally the Melbourne Hotel. It was constructed in 1924 
during the town's early tourism boom by a developer named Elton Hall. It opened on the evening of September 24th that year on Hall's 34th birthday with a celebration attended by hundreds. During the mid-1920s, the local Chamber of Commerce was actively engaged in a push to promote Melbourne as the midway city between Jacksonville and Miami, an effort that was beginning to actually bear some fruit. In a pamphlet from the time, the Chamber compared the hotel to castles in Spain. The Melbourne Hotel boasted 100 rooms, a restaurant, a bar, office spaces, and the local telegraph office. At one time, the city's police dispatch office was also headquartered here. Located at the corner of New Haven Avenue and South Harper City Boulevard, which is US 1, it faced the city's first traffic light. It later became a bank and then a variety of shops and offices as it was remodeled and renamed the 1900 building. After all, its address is 1900 Harper City. According to one story that has become associated with the building over the years, the former hotel is haunted by the ghost of a woman named Amelia, who is said to have lived and died there. As legend has it, Amelia fell in love with a boat captain who would meet her at the hotel when he came to port. Eventually, he failed to return, and she was devastated. Now roams the halls of this building to this day. She is looking and waiting for her lost love. Others say the captain himself died on the river attempting to return to her, and the two haunt the premises together. A more humorous tale is that that is known as the White Sheets and Pillowcase story. In its early years, the Melbourne Hotel was determined to keep up with the times. In the flapper age of the 1920s, hotel management decided to change all the bed linen to flapper red and blue colors. Such bedding was made of linen, silk, and rayon, and other fabrics that were not cotton. This did not sit well with a longtime resident of the hotel, Timothy E. McGuire, a traditionalist, a leading citizen, and a Melbourne mover and shaker. He demanded that the hotel return to the cotton and traditional white for everything, including the towels. Hotel management said, no. Timothy replied, you'll regret this move as I will haunt this flapper hotel forever. Some say that Mr. McGuire succeeded in following through on his threat. Even though the building was no longer served as a hotel, washroom towels are still all white, lest Mr. McGuire gets out of sorts. That's typing a novel? Yeah. So Lyle said his best friend actually lived in Melbourne. He's been there many times, but he did not know about the place. Lyle learned something new tonight. Yep. I said it sounds like a return order, return visits in order. Yeah. Even if your friend no longer lives there, it can always go back. Um, and Len's brother living in Clearwater. We didn't have Clearwater tonight, right? Mm. I don't think we did. I don't think so. No. Um, but Again, I, I just touched the very tip of <laughs> my research, so I had a lot more stories that didn't make it into the script. And Glenn, here's the reindeer bells. Uh, yep. That would be the spider. That is one of the boys' favorite toy when they decide to pull it out. The thing is as big as my fist, and, and they carry it around. And they're having a good old time there right now, beating on each other, because yes. that's what they do. They're brothers. They trounce each other. No other questions. No other questions. No other questions. I think I really do need to just do a Florida trip that's not Disney, that's not Universal, that's not U.S. Yeah, because we haven't basically seen anywhere else there. No. We spent a night in Fort Lauderdale when we flew in to go to Key West last time. I've done a little bit, but it's been years. Um, my, of course, my grandparents used to winter in Florida, so we would go down. Um, but that was Kissimmee area, and I didn't get too far out of that. Mm-hmm. Other than the good, you know, Disney. <laughs> yeah, lots of places. So many that we haven't ever not even got to touch on tonight, too. But yeah. this next stop, we're going to be not too far from Cape Canaveral. And uh, you'll find the town of Rockledge, Rockledge, Florida. And it's here that you'll find a local dining establishment called Ashley's. Well, this outside of Ashley's presents a regal European stucco and wood Tudor building, a style of architecture that was popular in the 1930s. Inside is an informal neighborhood eatery and sports bar that offers reasonably priced appetizers and entrees that are appealing to one's appetite. 
Mm. Chicken fingers. <laughs> Mozzarella sticks. Oh. Fried yumminess. Mm. Okay. That's Drooling fine. now. All right. Uh, <clears throat> old stained glass windows, antique pictures, and pictures of the residing spiritual entities are a vital part of the decor. Dark wood continues uh, inside the English pub theme. And yes, we did say pictures of the resident spirits. We'll get right back to that. <laughs> now, as you walk in the front door, the bar area is to the left, and the bathrooms are off to the right, and there are tables and chairs and booths located around the bar area on the first floor. The kitchen is on the right side of the building, along the, and along the left inside wall of the building, there is a staircase leading up to the second floor that has tables with an open view of the floor below. Again, pictures are on the walls of the second floor as decor. A second staircase leads down to the kitchen, which is used by the staff. There is also an outside deck and bar, as well as an inside bar with big TVs to watch the sports and sporting games that they have on TV. Hmm. Excuse me. I'm trying to break up the slide behind you. Got a little fuzzy brawl behind me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, the land upon which Ashley's was built is said to be the site of an old railroad depot that burned to the ground. According to local history, this handsome Tudor-style building was constructed probably sometime after the 1932 repeal of Prohibition and was called Jack's Tavern. Now, Jack's Tavern was classy joint where men wore tails and a top hat and women wore their nicest dress. Built in a prime location just off the of main highway and near the railroad, this tavern, pub, eatery place survived through the years with many owners along the way and a change in names to go with a change in ownership. After starting off as Jack's Tavern, it was known as Cooney's Tavern, The Mad Duchess, The Loose Caboose, Sparrowhawk, and The Gentleman Jims before it became Ashley the Rockledge. Now, the most cited spirit on the premises is that of a woman that is known as Ethel. Some theories abound about who she is thought to be, possibly a woman who was murdered on site during the time of Jack's Tavern. Many legends swirl around a, uh, around a young 19-year-old woman known as Ethel Allen, who loved to come to the place in the 1930s. Jack's Tavern was the last place that she was seen alive. A psychic who investigated Ashley's had a vision of Ethel being murdered there. Her killer was never brought to justice. It is reported that she ran around with a rough, rough crowd of folks, perhaps gangster types, or people who liked to party hard with little self-control. Perhaps a boyfriend or ex-boyfriend of hers was a bad boy type with a temper and a jealousy issue. In a lot of murders, the victim knows the attacker, and it's theorized that she may have angered her killer. The condition of her body shows signs of it being a crime of passion. The remains of Ethel were found mutilated and burned on the shores of the Indian River. A variety of op uh, opinions are suggested by a variety of sources as to where this violent murder was done. Some say that Ethel met her violent end in the bathroom or on the second floor or the storage room or just outside the front door. Entities of people who die at the hands of others sometimes haunt the place of their death, looking for their killer, sometimes bothering the living that look like their killer as they don't always live in the present. Sometimes these entities bother the living to feel empowered and to get revenge. Sometimes the restless entity gives the living an example of what was felt during the entity's unpleasant and sometimes violent death. Or sometimes these victims won't accept their death and continue to frequent the place that they loved on Earth, getting chuckled by teasing the living or giving personal opinions about changes to the building. It is described as being a playful at times or perhaps tries to show others how she died. She likes to tease the staff in the ladies' room. One staff member was in the stall when she noticed the shoes of a woman in the stall next to her. The shoes and stockings resembled the 1930s-style foot attire, boot-like shape with buttons and high heels, but when the staff member came out, the stall was suddenly empty. Another staff member was trying to come out of the bathroom, but a force was pushing the exit door closed so the staff member could not come out. Finally and abruptly, the door was allowed to open. Sometimes a faint reflection of this entity can also be seen in the bathroom mirror. It may be this entity that tries to show others how her murder began with a terrified scream. This alarming scream is heard in the middle of the night coming from this building as reported by the police that have a station right across the street. 
Ethel's spirit is joined by that of a young man. He could be a victim of an accident or perhaps is the killer of Ethel himself. In any case, he seems to be upset at his circumstances, and he has a tendency to show his displeasure on the staff staircase. Witnesses have been shoved from behind, almost causing them to fall. They have also been choked from behind. A sense of doom is felt on the staircase. If the spirit is angry because he died in a dumb car accident, he may be one who he may be the one that throws things around the kitchen, breaks glasses, and is responsible for the poltergeist activity in the building. A paranormal team thinks that they managed to capture an image of this young man by the front door, and this picture is one of the ones that graces the walls of Ashley's today. Because, of the, because the Ashley's of Rockledge building is located so close to train tracks and the main highway, it is theorized that some of those who died in various accidents, whether they be car crashes or or train accidents around the building may have sought shelter at Ashley's after their untimely deaths. One story tells of the tale of a man being dragged down the stairs of Ashley's in the 1940s to a police car by officers. While the man's autistic daughter watched and cried, it is said that she ran out into the road in her distress and was accidentally killed by a car. The child's ghost may also be the one behind the poltergeist activity, like a child wanting attention but feeling ignored. Some people have seen the little girl out the corner of their eyes playing and dancing, using the entire space inside and out as her play area. The entity of an older gentleman is thought to be that of a long-term, long-time employee who worked there many years and lived upstairs. The apparition of an older gentleman with a towel over his arm has been seen standing by the inside bar. He is thought to engage in some poltergeist activity of his own, but he moves the chairs and objects and straightens the pictures on the walls, still trying to be helpful in his own way. Even when the spirits are not moving objects around or making themselves seen to others, they are lingering about and making themselves known. The living will feel icy hands on their shoulders and back. TVs turn on and off by themselves. Lights have been seen flickering on and off during the night, and burglar alarms go off unexplicably. The, and employees tell of hearing whispering in the restaurant after closing. Sounds like a rather creepy place. It does. Nice little Tudor style. Sounds little... difficult to investigate though with the highway. Oh yeah, train. it would be it would be rather noisy around there, I would imagine. But well, noisy perhaps, but maybe you can catch a little bit of uh, stuff flying around or something like that. Yeah. Sounds like things have a tendency to move. Yep. <laughs> and I'm very jealous of why I was going to be at Disney in three weeks. Well, have a dole with honey. Yes, sure, yeah. Especially Ooh, one with rum. Oh, can get that Animal Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Mm, so good. Uh, but, yeah, we'll have a little vacation of our own. Not Disney, but a little vacation of our own. All right, so we're going to go to Orlando now because I could not do Florida and not have an Orlando story. So we're going to Hamburger Mary's. Orlando may not may be the best known for its theme parks today, but it does have its fair share of haunted history as well. In 1886, Bumby Building on West Church Street was a family-run hardware store until 1960. It's now the home to several businesses, including Hamburger Mary's Restaurant, and of course to a variety of homes. Most Bumby sightings report benign spirits, such as a small girl dressed in period clothing from the late 1800s who plays a skipping game over the brick road. Some accounts say that the same girl can be seen in the windows, waving and smiling to people as they pass before she disappears from view. There's no known the origin story for her or who she may have been or how she died so early in life. Some stories speculate she might not realize she's dead and simply continues acting like a normal child of her age, night and night after night. Other rivers tell of spectral bartenders wiping down the counters. Those who claim to have caught the bartender's eyes say that they mistook him for an enthusiastic worker in costume. He smiled quietly before disappearing. By the way, Hamburger Mary's is a dry place. It looks. Amazing. <laughs> I need to go. <laughs> now, we're also going to pop over to Akawawa. Am I close? Yeah, Akawawa. And this is Ma Barker's house because I found a gangster story. It's awesome. 
because I had to. <laughs> because a friend posted about the Goonies, and I'm like, oh, female gangster, need to throw this one in. <laughs> so, a little north and west of Orlando, you'll find Akalala. Uh, back in 1935, Kate Ma Barker, once public enemy number one, and her son were gunned down by FBI agents. The town does a reenactment of the shootout every January. But some say Barker's spirit still haunts the house. Hatched bullet holes are easily visible through this, uh, throughout the two-story house. The house has been kept just as it was in the 1930s, and no one met the minimum $1 million bid back in 2012 when it uh, went up for auction. The spirits of the Barkers are still said to haunt the home space. Their story is well-documented, including a local newspaper article that was published in October 2016 by Lane DeGregory. In the article, he tells of the reporter's visit to the home and an ominous phone call. Donald J. Weiss was a 62-year-old retired police patrolman from upstate New York. He had moved to Australia several years prior and visited the house where gangster Mom Balfour had been killed. He had wanted to see the site of the longest shootout in FBI history, four hours more than 2,000 bullets. That's a lot of bullets. It is. After his visit, he called the newsroom with a warning. They can't move that house. He was worried that something terrible would happen, and he had an overwhelming need to warn somebody. But Weiss was at the home. He wandered beneath the live oaks, and a voice growled, get out of here, lawman when he took a photo of the front porch revealing a shadowing that Ma was still in the home and she was mad. Weiss gave the photo to the Marion County Sheriff's Office because he wanted to enter it into evidence. And because that thing started happening as soon as he had blown up the print, including an unexpected heart attack. Weiss had done a little digging and found that the property had been sold. County officials wanted to move the house. He knew that Ma's desires did not align with those of the county officials. Nothing good would come from trying to move that home. Reporters got a lot of crazy calls. Many might dismiss this one, but DeGregory knew this house, and so did his friend, John Pendergraft. In 2012, DeGregory and Pendergraft did a real estate story on the old home. The historic house was for sale, residing on nine waterfront acres, eight miles north of the villages, two hours from Tampa, it was a good piece of property with some fascinating and grim history. They had toured the four-bedroom house with a realtor whose assistant shivered and said, I get the weirdest feeling while I'm in here. There were reported rumors about flickering lights and an unsuccessful exorcism. The Gregory and Pentagraph may have been inclined to dismiss the jitters of the realtors, but Pentagraph's experience in the house and one of his photos left him with chills. John had to work had a work history and had uh, taken him over to war zones in Afghanistan and the Gaza Strip. He had photographed the dead from an Asian tsunami, a Mexican assassination, and Hurricane Katrina. If he is, uh, if he ever is scared, he doesn't show it. That day, when he was in the house, he had gone alone into the front bedroom to take pictures through the window looking out toward the lake where the FBI agents had crouched behind trees. All of a sudden, John rushed out, cameras, lights, tripod, tripod flapping over his shoulders, nearly sliding down the 13 stairs. He just managed to stammer out, I don't know what happened or what it was. He heard the mattress fall, then he saw it dangling through the bed frame. He insisted he didn't touch it. They had left that afternoon, and as dust began to descend beneath the Spanish mosh, John shot a few final frames. The next day, when he zoomed in on his laptop, he saw a strange figure on the screen porch, the silhouette of a stout woman with a bun who looked like she was holding a machine gun. That'd be Ma. Ma's story starts in Missouri in 1873. Her parents named her Arizona Donnie Clark. Not bad name. She had a farmhand, George Baker, Barker, and had four sons. As soon as the boys were grown, her husband left. Legends about, vary about Ma's role in her boys' gang. Some say she just cooked and cleaned. Others say she was the mastermind. That is. No, she probably did both. <laughs> they began robbing banks. They murdered policemen, a policeman. And from 1910 to 1930, 
They have, are said to have stolen $2 million and killed at least 10 people. The FBI's first director, J. Edgar Hoover, called them the worst criminals in the entire country, and Ma became the only woman to top the most wanted list. In 1934, the gang split and went into hiding. One son fled to Chicago. Ma and her favorite son, Baby Freddie, moved to Miami. For posing and as a wealthy widow, she asked if anyone knew a secluded spot where she could spend the winter. Someone introduced her to Carson uh, Bradford, and they had a lovely family home in the center of Florida on Lake Weir. The house sounded perfect, fully furnished, set back from the road with a boat tethered to a dock out back. Ma paid the full season's rent in cash. Just before Thanksgiving, she moved in with Freddie and a couple of his friends. In a letter to her son Arthur in Chicago, she drew a map of the lake and circled the closest town, Othello. She mailed it from Oklahoma's little post office. FBI agents found Arthur the following January and with him the letter which led him to Ma's hideout. In the pre-dawn darkness of January 16th of 1935, a dozen officers pointed their guns at the upstairs windows. This is the FBI, the officer shouted, according to an agency report, you are surrounded. Some say the gun battle lasted as long as six hours. When it was over, they found Freddie, 32, shot in the back of the head. Ma, 63, was curled on the floor, cradling her Tommy gun. That day, Hoover said, marked the end of an era of violence. For nine months, the corpse was displayed unclaimed. Finally, a relative moved them closer to home. But some say Ma still inhabits that two-story cream-colored house with four screen shutters. The cop on the phone, the photographer, the former and current owner, all saw, heard, and felt something. But DeGregory felt he was in the vine. How do you record a ghost story? Ghostly tales are common in newspapers a century ago, but the art of putting a ghost story in print next to the political and financial news of the day is a bit of a lost art. There's some amazing articles out back out there from 100 years ago. Now, he started with the Marion County Sheriff's Office with uh, that evidence photo of the retired cop just mentioned on the phone. Lieutenant Dave Redmore remembered some man bringing in the photo, but the deputy considered it unremarkable. He went to, on to talk to Carson Good, the great-grandson of the man who built the house, and has memories of swimming and sailing in the lake, and countless sleepless nights cringing in the dark. While Good was not a believer himself, he was forced to admit there are a lot of inexplicable noises in that home, particularly under the cover of darkness. Voices, furniture moving, people walking up and down the wooden stairs. But grandmother didn't like to talk about it, but she often heard spirits stirring. He recalled psychic uh, psychic held a seance in the house and convinced the ghost of Freddie Barker to move on. But the medium said, Ma refused to move. Good and his family sold the property and donated the house to the county, which hired a contractor to lift the home off its foundations and float it across Lake Weir to a park called Kearney Island. The county has hopes of reopening the house as a museum with potential hosting ghost tours and paranormal events as well. Anything to raise a little revenue for the municipal coffers. On a gray Wednesday in October, more than 81 years after the shootout, the Gregory and Pendigraph returned to the scene. The house already had been lifted on jack. The screen porch was gone. The workers were carrying out lamps. Novelist Tony Stewart was parked in an SUV, taking pictures. He had driven down from Indiana for the event. Like Pendergraft, he swore he had seen a face in the window, and he had an unshakable feeling that whatever was in the house did not want them there and had no intention of coming out. On Thursday morning, the old house floated across the lake on a barge, and when it was towed to its new resting place on the island, Nobody knows whether or not Ma's ghost moved with it. Well, Pam will tell. Yep. She seemed uh, rather attached to that place. Yes, she did. Ma gets what Ma wants. <laughs> or Ma points her Tommy gun at you. Yeah. <laughs> she was masterminded. Oh, definitely. She might have cooked dinner, but she was laying down the law. Oh, yeah. Their law. Yes. <clears throat> hmm. So now we're actually going to be going back over to the coast, uh, not too far from uh, Rockledge. We're going to be going to the previously mentioned Cape Canaveral. So by the late 1950s, the space race wasn't just about getting to space. 
NASA had a goal to land a manned mission on the moon, but they needed bigger rockets. The previous mission, Project Gemini, was using Air Force Titan II missiles to launch spacecraft into orbit. For the adventurous Apollo program, NASA was planning on using the Saturn family of rockets made for launching heavy payloads high into the sky. They were also going to need a larger launch pad to accommodate the bigger rockets. So they got to work on building Launch Complexes 34. Construction on LC-34 began in 1959 and was completed a year later. <clears throat> in 1961, NASA launched its first test of a Saturn rocket from the newly built launch complex, and over the next two years, three more test rockets were successfully launched from LC-34. In 1966, NASA finally began preparing for its big mission to the moon by launching the unmanned Apollo spacecraft known uh, as a payload with the Saturn rocket. The two test launches were a success, and AS-204, now known as Apollo 1, kicked into high gear. <clears throat> now, AS-204 was going to be the first manned mission of the Apollo program, the end goal of which was to successfully land a manned spacecraft on the moon. Apollo 1 was simply going to be a test. The engineers at NASA wanted to put this manned Apollo command and service module into orbit. The launch was scheduled for February of 1967. In January, the pilots geared up for what they thought was going to be a launch rehearsal. Little did they know that Apollo 1 would never make it off the ground. On January 27, 1967, pilots Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chafee rode the Astro Van out to the launch site. This particular rehearsal was to test if the Apollo spacecraft could correctly operate using its own internal power. The test was considered non-hazardous as there was no fuel or cryogenics aboard the spacecraft, and the pyrotechnics had been disabled. The engineers were confident and didn't plan for any serious emergencies, which proved to be a fatal mistake. After the first successful run, faulty wiring caused an electric spark that ignited the highly oxygenated air in the, air in the craft. It took about five seconds for the flames to overwhelm the cabin. The door was sealed shut, trapping the pilots inside. There was no way for rescue crews to get in. The fire eventually burned a hole through the cabin and burst through the exterior of the craft. They died almost instantly, and their spacesuits and oxygen tubes were found partially melted. According to the autopsy, the pilots died from asphyxiation after being exposed to toxic pressurized air. The third-degree burns that covered their bodies happened after their deaths. It was a gruesome end, indeed. The Apollo disaster left a dark aura over, Na aura over NASA. Public perceptions shifted. It was later revealed that one of the contractors for the Apollo program was knowingly doing subpar work. The manned tests of the Apollo mission were halted as investigations and Senate hearings were held. Before the fire, Apollo 1 was referred to as AS-204, uh, but uh, at the request of the families of the late astronauts, the mission was renamed Apollo 1. The next manned mission, Apollo 7, was the last to take off from Launch Complex 34. The crew trained for 21 months and rigorous testing and inspections were done of the Apollo spacecraft and its equipment. The crew actually monitored the construction of the spacecraft in person. Though Apollo 7 was a success, tensions grew between the crew and ground control were high, mainly due to the fear of another disaster. Launch Complex 34 was decommissioned in 1969, a few months after Apollo 7. The structures were mothballed and scrapped in 1972, and all that's left today are the concrete launch pad, two flame shields, and the blockhouse. On the launch pad are two plaques that play, pay homage to the tragedy of Apollo 1 and the astronauts who lost their lives. There are also three granite benches with the names of the astronauts, as well as a blue astronaut memorial kiosk. LC-34 is a weird place. The decaying concrete launch pad towers over an empty grass and cement field like a monolith. It doesn't look like the site of a disaster, but everyone who visits knows what took place. The darkness of that day still hangs over the abandoned structure. Many say that the ghosts of the three pilots still haunt the area. Visitors report feeling overwhelming sadness, fear, and even a terrible sense of doom. They describe it as if the world was coming to an end. 
Others report having vivid memories of the disaster as if they had experienced it themselves, despite it occurring over 50 years ago. The most common occurrences are loud, painful cries of agony echoing from the launch site. The isolation of the area means that there are no obvious sources for the sound to be coming from. Some claim to see the flames bursting through the Apollo spacecraft and even feel the heat of the fire as an overwhelming burning sensation engulfs their body. Those who visit Launch Complex 34 relive the lives of the astronauts in their last moments. NASA had to halt visitors to the launch pad due to strange and unexplained occurrences. We don't know what that means exactly, but we can only guess. Maybe the ghosts of the astronauts came back to give the Apollo 1 flight another shot. Perhaps the spirits began to haunt NASA personnel, too. We will never know the truth. At one point, NASA even had to cease allowing visitors to LC-34. Um, and uh, while they don't go into too much detail, we can only imagine that it has something to do with spooky haunting with the old launch pad. I had something in there twice. I didn't do a good job of that to do that. Oops. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> Keep going because I'm keeping the benefit from touching the screen. Oh, yeah, that would not be good. Uh, so, we are going to go and scoot down to Coral Gables where we find the historic Biltmore Hotel. Not to be confused with the Biltmore in North Carolina. This is completely different. Completely different. Now, the most famous legend at this historic hotel is of a mobster killed in a gambling dispute who is said to remain there in spirit. Visitors and employees have seen lights turn on and off by themselves and the elevator repeatedly going to the wrong floor. It's not all mischief, however. The resident spirits have also been known to hold doors open for servers in the hotel's restaurant. For places meant to be for, uh, meant to be for the upper crust of society, it seems like luxury hotels are always the most haunted. I mean, who wouldn't want to come back and bask in the lap of luxury? The Biltmore Hotel first opened its doors in 1926, and it was quickly populated by several legends. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, gangster Al Capone, and Olympic swimmer and Tarzan star Johnny Weissmuller, uh, Weissmuller were known guests at the Biltmore for a time. It was also a favorite among some of the jazz age greats. The hotel's initial life was short, however, as it was converted into a military hospital during the Second World War. After the war, it continued to serve medical purposes as a VA hospital and as the campus for the University of Miami Medical School. After being abandoned for a number of years, the hotel was restored and reopened in 1987, once again serving as a luxury escape for those looking for elegant accommodations. It was designated as a National Historic Site in 1996. Of all the possible spirits at the Biltmore Hotel, one definitely could be considered to have some unfinished business. It was gangster Tommy Fatty, or Thomas Fatty Walsh, who was murdered on the 13th floor of the hotel due to that gambling dispute in 1929. Needless to say, they don't believe that Walsh is the spirit that helps the staff with the elevator doors. Rather, he might be the one who scrawls unsettling messages into steaming bathroom mirrors. If you have a stay at the Billmore Hotel, hopefully you'll have an encounter with one of the spirits that genuinely seems happy to help you. All right, going to Brooksville. Now, this is about an hour north of Tampa on the Nature Coast, as it's affectionately called, and it's, uh, it's there that you'll find Brooksville. The town has many historic buildings lining old cobblestone streets, but one local home in particular has caught the attention of paranormal researchers across the country. The May Stringer House is a four-story Victorian house built in 1856 by John May. It seems like this is where the problems began. John May died only, uh, only two years after the May family moved in. A decade later, his wife, Marina, died giving birth to a daughter she conceived with her new husband, Frank Saxon. Their daughter, Jessie May, died soon after at only three years old. Jessie May is said to be the prominent spirit inhabiting the home, calling for her mother and keeping a watch, careful watch on her dolls that still reside in the home. The May family and others later were buried on the property. The home was then sold to Dr. Sheldon Stringer, who used one of the rooms for his medical practice. It's rumored that up to eight different ghosts inhabit the house, including a malevolent spirit that occupies the attic and despises women in particular. The home is now a museum, and there are plenty of stories from staff and volunteers about strange activity. 
If you're brave enough to spend the night in a haunted house, the home provides private ghost tours on select nights. So, happy haunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Patrick, this one I've, I found just for you. <laughs> oh, Pat Storm LC34. No, we're not talking about Facebook. <laughs> Go ahead, Patrick. I promise I'll at least mark myself as interested. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and yes, the kitties are really snuggly. They have not been snuggly with me all day. They've been on Chris all day. Um, I'm finally getting snuggled. It's your turn. I don't all right, so this is the Phantom Horse of Celery Avenue. Here's another ghost story from Seminole County. The one originates out of Sanford Celery Avenue near Baradol Avenue, to be exact. There was once a time when Sanford was known as the celery capital of the nation because of how easily it grew there. Acres of celery fields lined both sides of the road, and local blacksmith named Sly Ernest owned the big white horse that weighed around 3,200 pounds and stood at 22 hands. Okay, I'm good. Carry on. Don't fight. Now, it was so heavy that when it died, it required a tractor to haul it from its stable to its burial pit beside Celery Avenue. It just so happens that Celery Avenue runs through old Native American ground where there is a preserved burial mound. In the 1960s, not only were parts of this mound paved over, but the horse's grave as well. There you go. That's rude. On multiple counts. <laughs> now, the, description, or the desecration of the grave has resulted in some very interesting sightings. For years, there have been reports of a translucent phantom horse galloping up and down the road. And people have witnessed the horse running next to their cars and would then vanish right in front of them. And some people have even reported seeing a mysterious rider that appears to be a Native American warrior riding uh, the horse alongside the road. Ghost horse. Ghost horse. All for you, Patrick. (laughs) That is the icing on the cake for this evening, which is probably just as well, because Nico is uh, getting to be... that's it. Yeah, a little, little fuss bucket here. Ooh, phantom horse need to pet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I found that one, I knew you would love that one. <laughs> oh, we are angry. You're, you're careful there. Oh, he's already poked a hole in my hand. Yep. We got these murder mitts. Thorough murder mitts right here. Right there. Arr. <laughs> You're very welcome, Patrick. And, yeah. But thank you all so much for coming out and spending a, spending a little time with us this evening to share some spooky tales from our our southeastern uh, state down there. Yes, so definitely keep keep following us. We've got some more fun things coming out this winter, more information for our Honey Key West trip coming out too. So uh, definitely keep tuned. Um, and next month we're going to actually just do a full month of Victorian ghost stories. Uh, so probably do two ghost stories each night because um, on the timing of them. Yep. So we got, um, what is it, two weeks from today is what, the, December 6th? Yep. December 6th will be our first night of ghost stories. And then again, December 20th, we'll do a different set of Victorian ghost stories just because it's what we're in the mood for this year. Yep. And then uh, at some point, I think on the 23rd, we're going to be doing a live in-person reading of a couple of Victorian ghost stories down with our friends at Richborough. Yep. So, so we'll, of course, announce those so people can come down and see us uh, once we have confirmation, but we believe it's the, the night of the 23rd. Yep. Stop eating your daddy's ankle. Let He's like sock. There we go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Come here, Mr. Vincent. Oh, we are, we are in a mood. Oh. Such a mood. Oh. <sighs> All right. <laughs> so with that, I suppose we will bid you all for farewell for this evening. Have um, a happy Thanksgiving. Yes. Have a fun feast. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving Thanks. to all. 
you have safe travels if you're going to see family. And if you're not, um, just safe you know, digestion. Safe digestion. <laughs> just enjoy, uh, enjoy yourself some, uh, some, some tasty treats over the holiday weekend. And, uh, yeah, we will talk to you all in a couple of weeks. But, uh, as always, if you want to talk to us before then, always happy to hear from you. Feel free to drop us a note anytime. So, with that, I, I will try to move no, this. I got it. Okay. Here, take the drink. Move this volatile, volatile, this volatile explosive. Good night, everybody. Bye, everybody. <laughs>